as I was approaching the end of my 20s, there was more of this idea that I could keep moving and I could keep looking at the world as if the grass was greener somewhere else. That's Taj Campbell, co-founder of Tenari. Tenari is a technology company creating high-quality, life-size video and audio options for remote working. Taj has been thinking about this idea of connection through technology for a long time, even before COVID pushed most of us into remote working. I'm Maureen Taylor, co-founder of S&P Communications. On this episode of Think Like a Founder, Taj talks about almost getting fired from Google, how Japan's bullet trains inspired how he built his company, and the importance of family. This is Think Like a Founder. I understand you are the oldest child, as am I. You grew up on your parents' winery in Washington State with your younger sister, who you're very close with, and both of you live in Japan now. And As a kid, you had lots of space and freedom to explore. What was that like, and how did that influence you? Yeah, I think it was amazing to grow up with that kind of space. I grew up on the vineyard. My father had built the winery a few years prior to me being born. The winery itself, like the facility, was built out of like an old farm airplane hangar. And then next door to that was just kind of like a really simple mobile home that we lived in. Being able to live in the place where my father worked meant that I kind of had really constant access to like him and my parents and like the other staff that were sort of around the winery. Going to school was just about a mile down the road. I went to a small Montessori school that was just like half the day. I would come home. I would then go to my neighbor's house, which was like half a mile down the road in the opposite direction, really elderly woman with with no children. And she would take care of us through the afternoon. And then at some point, I would kind of wander back through an apple orchard to get back home. Pretty simple, idyllic situation, I think. Lots of access to smart adults in my life when I was growing up. And so many different random tools, a lot of them probably dangerous for me to tinker with, but a lot of things to sort of like play with and like keep my mind really active and keep my body really physically engaged with the world. And I think that was really cool. I went to high school in Montana. You know, as I kind of got through towards the end of high school, I was still an internet kid. So even though I was like living in all these rural areas, we had internet from when I was six years old with a computer. I was still very engaged with the rest of the world. So I think by the time I like kind of got through puberty and into high school, I had this real urge to not just be out in the country, but be in a place that felt like more globally connected. And I think that's what pushed me to sort of apply to go to university out of state. So at that point, I chose the University of Washington in Seattle because it was still kind of close to home, close to other family where my mom's brothers and sisters lived. UW, it was a very different experience because I went from, you know, growing up in towns of hundreds of people or a couple thousand people to being on a campus of 30,000 people being in an actual city. I really loved it. I got so much out of just being engaged with other people and being in an environment where I could learn as much as I want from people who I saw to be experts at everything. So curious, curiosity about everything. What did you major in when you first went there? What did you think that you wanted to be when you got out? I wasn't sure at all. My first major ended up being math. And it was really by happenstance. I had dropped into the honors calculus curriculum at the university 
and just happened to really like the professor who was teaching that course. And I never thought I would get so into math, but between the professor and one of the TAs, who was a, a kid from Hong Kong, they got me really intrigued by number theory and the puzzles and logic involved in defining the sets of numbers. And I had such a hard time in that course that my passion for math suddenly faded by the end of my first year. <laughs> and then what did you do? Then I switched to a program called International Studies, which was like a mixture of pre-law, geopolitics, history, political science. That was really interesting because I, I spread myself very, very wide in my first couple of years at university. Mm -hmm. I wanted to engage a lot more in like what was just happening in society, learn more about economics and like other fundamental things about like how the world works. And I started forming this idea in my head that I wanted to go into some sort of copyright or IP law because... I was feeling really confused or frustrated by the state of the copyright law in the world because it seemed like it was so easy for people to take other people's work or inventions and then protect it. Take something that would be part of the public domain of knowledge and turn it into something that's very private. And being on the internet, looking at like how so much music was being created from people sampling and remixing other people's music or like so many other interesting works are created by taking an old story in the case of Disney, taking a fairy tale and animating it and turning it into something new. I just felt like so much of human knowledge builds on itself. And philosophically, there was something so unfair about the practices in copyright and patent law. But as I learned about the practical realities of law and not just being an idealist about it, I learned that law is also a pretty miserable field. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want to try to change the world through law, you have to be very, very, very patient. People spend their entire career trying to basically go through the court process and the legislative process to prove that something is wrong and then ultimately have the law change to reflect that. And at the same time that I was having all of those, those thoughts and feelings, I realized that there were other sort of companies out there that were basically frequently breaking the law, but doing it in a way that was so compelling to everyday people <laughs> that it really caused people to just kind of like question whether anything made sense in the first place. Give an example. The example of that for me was just YouTube. YouTube was an incredibly popular platform on the internet because it was the first thing to sort of bring video into the mainstream. And I think at that point, everyone just completely changed their mind about how important this whole copyright thing was. It was so universal so quickly because like everyone can access YouTube from their laptop. Whether you're a judge or a legislator or anyone, you're using it. Your opinion of like how the world should be has like already changed almost overnight. That's when I felt like building technology products that have the ability to scale tremendously and really focusing on certain aspects of the design that can change people's behavior and change the way that people fundamentally think is a much more powerful way to sort of think about changing the world than being a lawyer. So Taj pivoted from law, and after an internship at Microsoft, he joined Google as part of their Associate Product Manager, or APM program, under Marissa Meyer. At Google, Taj learned a lot about the importance of environment as a factor to success. He also learned more about his own values and what was important to him. The true story of my first year at Google is I almost got fired. I started on an internal project that was supposed to be a competitor to Facebook that I had a lot of doubts about, but I didn't see how it was playing to like Google's core strengths. So 
uh, I actually just started trying to like slither my way out of that project. And I found this like fledgling blogger team, 14 engineers propping up what was at the time the ninth biggest internet service in the world. Taj joined a team called Blogger, a free blog publishing tool from Google and an open publication platform available in almost every language in the world. He thought it was important for the world because it was a platform for free speech that was accessible everywhere. It was sort of a great platform, I thought, for citizen journalism around the world. So I wanted to work on that, but no one else wanted me to work on that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> why? I was interested in Blogger for these very idealistic reasons, but... It just wasn't strategically important. And I kept trying to push things in a different way, saying, this is still really important. This is still really big. I think we should be working on it. And those disagreements became really bad and very, very heated. I got lucky because I had this ejection ripcord that I could pull, which was Marissa Mayer. Marissa was the head of the APM program, which was the program that I was in. And I think she, she understood that I was a very like passionate person and maybe like a change of environment would be a good thing for me. And so she pulled me out of Sellers Org and got me under John Hankey in Maps. Ooh. And I ended up being a really great fit for yeah. me. I really think something I strongly believe in is this nurture over nature or adaptation is a stronger force than self-will. Or another way to say all of this is that I think we are very much shaped by our environment and the situation that we're in, and maybe the privilege that we have. And I think like, you know, some part of success is my own. But I think that moment when I got pulled out of Blogger, and I got put into Maps, and I got put in a different environment with different management, different people around me, that shaped me way more than anything I could have done on my own. I think in Blogger, I just spent all this time like fighting and fighting and fighting to do what I thought was right. But the odds were just against me all the time. That feeling about like making sure that you're in the right environment for your success has been something that I kind of like constantly think about ever since. That's interesting because I don't think there's a contradiction there. One of the things that we have found over the years being a founder and then working with so many founders is you can't help it. Your curiosity and putting things together or being true to yourself, but the People that are a little crazier are ones that see something and have to do it. For the folks out there that might be listening to this, any advice to them? Because it's not about money. It's not about education. It's about what? What is it? I know it's not about nurture over nature. I think the thing that changed in my mind, like I said, is I had this more meta realization that if I think a little bit more than about like the next two weeks, the next six months, and if I can somehow step back from my situation and see the environment that I'm in and the impact that that has on my ability to achieve whatever it is that I'm like trying to get to. And I think about making like much bigger shifts and changes to that environment rather than trying to focus so much on changing myself. I found that that's like an easier way for me to change. Adaptation is a stronger force than self-will. If I think about who I surround myself with, if I think about like the next person I want to hire on my team, or if I think about the next mentor that I want to work with, or the next investor that I bring into the project, all of those things are part of the environment that I'm creating for my own success. And all of those people are going to change me in some way, change me into like who I'm trying to become. 
in some of my worst periods, like when I like thought I was going to get fired at Google, <laughs> at Blogger or whatever, I had lost the ability to see that. And I like sometimes like started to like really question myself and like whether or not I could continue to like muster the energy to like just keep fighting and fighting and fighting because that's what it felt like. It just felt like this battle and it felt like I was losing and I didn't have the energy to win. And that created a certain feeling of like self-doubt. And it took someone else to sort of like tell me like, no, it's not you. It's not all you. (laughs) It might be where you are. Taj moved to Tokyo, Japan to work on Google Maps, which at the time was just getting started. When I joined Maps in 2008, iPhone had just hit the block and it was not where most of the Maps users were. Like most of the Maps users were still using it on their computer. People are looking for driving directions and they need to print them out better. Everyone had this super long vision about how we would go about actually like physically mapping the entire world and driving cars and flying planes and like using satellites. And it was such like an amazing undertaking. It was so easy to get energized by. And to me, like Google Maps was just like the power to always be able to get home. That really, really simple tool really is a superpower because it really changes the way that you think about being able to go out and explore the world without any sort of guidance. I think that was what was exciting for me. Like I could wander in this new city endlessly without any worry about whether or not I would be able to figure out how to get back where I was. And so it's not something that I like had out in front of my face all the time following directions. It was something I just kept in my pocket as like sort of my, my emergency. Okay, time to get back. So I thought that was, that was really amazing about it. I was so proud to, to work for a company because like there's, there's so much public good in these projects and yet there's no way to ever finance or do this thing as like a public undertaking. I felt very, very proud to work at a company that sort of like had that vision at that time. Taj eventually left Google and stayed in Tokyo. It's clear from how he talks about Tokyo how fascinating he finds the city. The connections and friendships he made in Japan made him realize where he wanted to put down roots and ultimately planted the seeds for his idea for Tunari. I guess I've like always kind of like kept bouncing from place to place as I sort of like find something new that I want to pursue. I ended up going from uh, San Francisco to Tokyo, just kind of really wanting to change my environment again. And I think like as I was approaching the end of my 20s, I had this like very different sense about what it meant to like change my environment. Throughout most of my 20s, there was more of this idea that I could keep moving and I could keep looking at the world as if the grass was greener somewhere else. And when I started reaching like the end of my 20s and I had started developing these like very close long-term relationships and friendships and I had a different attitude towards my relationships, I started to realize that like the environment that I need to be in is the one that I need to create for myself with the people around me. And so I sort of like thought a lot about where I wanted to do that, where I wanted to sort of start creating this environment and this community and this home. And well, I could go back to California and do that, but Maybe I should just do it where I already am because people I love are here. And in some ways, I think that's something that I've thought a lot about as we're developing the product that we're working on now. What was missing from that scenario? Like what was missing in our ability to like communicate while I'm basically remote all the time, even though I'm in another office surrounded by people. I really felt like it was okay that I couldn't continue my career at Google. Like I wanted to think about how to do something new. 
And before starting this company, Tanari, I decided I wanted to like build some sort of real sense of like community or collective to kind of surround myself with other brilliant people that I could work on things with together. And so we started a community and a makerspace called Straylight. And we started just throwing a bunch of tools in it and started like building basically the spaces that we thought were missing from Tokyo. And so it's this weird hybrid of like a workshop, garage and large kitchen <laughs> where you can like also like host events and friends because no one has a big kitchen in their tiny Tokyo apartment. No one has a garage. No one has a place to like do work with tools. And so we created that space. So where you are now and what you're doing now, is this like an end game or a, a continuation? Where are you in your path? I think I have in my mind this vision for like the next five to 10 years. And it comes from sort of this realization that like, we live in such an exciting globalized time where it's like so easy to like travel all over the world and it's so easy to like make friends everywhere. And our sense of home is becoming like so much more detached from like any one geographic place. So for me, like part of my home is still in Montana where my family is and part of my home in Japan, my home is in two places. I spend a lot of time here down at the beach and I spend a lot of time in Tokyo where we still have our makerspace and workshop. And there are these different communities and I really want them to like all feel more connected because I don't think that the desire for people to travel and move around the world or like be with different people is going to go away. But I really think that having to fly on planes is kind of unsustainable. I mean, it's ecologically unsustainable because we're putting like so much pollutant into the air when we fly. It's very hard on our time, hard on our bodies. And so when we started working on Tanari, it was part of this like very long selfish plan of mine to figure out like how I could connect these disparate places in my life and make them feel a lot more connected all the time. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to end up yet, but I know that my parents are getting older and there's not so much time left to be able to spend really quality time with them. So if I want to go and spend a month there, I should be able to do that without that disrupting my entire life. What's so interesting about this is the pandemic. What's going on right now is proving your theory is correct. Yeah, I think the pandemic is accelerating. It's accelerating a trend that was already there. People had been talking about how remote work was on the rise for a while more people like trying to work from home. Uh, everyone's been like suddenly forced into this situation where this is like our new reality. Everyone can start doing it for a little while. It has like so many downsides. You're like stuck at home all the time and you can become very isolated from other people that you want to be close to or that you want to work with. You miss out on like so much that's happening because so many of like the tools that we use for staying in touch right now require us to be so sort of formal in the way that we communicate. When you write an email or when you send a message or a call, like there's always sort of a trigger and an intention, something that you're trying to like really specifically communicate. And like what we miss is running into someone around like the water cooler or like the random conversations that happen in hallways and elevators or being able to sit down and enjoy lunch and just move your body freely in the way that that changes the way that you think and talk. The tools are kind of at a place where we can accomplish so much more than we ever could. And it is possible for people to spend a lot more time like working remotely. And at the same time, we know that there's still this like big gap 
that they're not really good enough for us to do everything that we used to do or that we don't really benefit from like the same level of like collective intelligence that we do when we can actually all be much physically closer and just communicating all the time. Mm-hmm. Our product is to basically build these like giant wall size portals initially right now that allow you to have two spaces feel like they're really connected so that people can like have a very similar kind of interaction to just like peering in, seeing if someone else is in the other room, like striking up a conversation and having that in a way that like feels very natural and life-size. So people are like full body size and like the audio is very, very clear. We decided to just go really deep on this idea because you can see it in any sci-fi film. It's like so obvious as a way to build this thing. But it doesn't have to be always on a plane and it doesn't have to be like this. You want to have where there's an actual, as close to an experience as you can get without actually being able to touch physically. Without being opinionated about how people should integrate it into their lives, we're building this in a way where we're not just thinking about building like an enterprise work tool that people put in their offices. I do think that connecting workplaces and schools is probably like one of the places where we could have the most leverage so that people have a lot more freedom about where they think they want to live and be with their family. My opinion is that like you should really stay close to your family and most people should probably treat work and their school community is a little bit more secondary. But over the long term, if you think of it as like a more universal infrastructure project, there's so much impact that you could have on society by creating these like other options that are basically alternatives for certain types of business travel or commuting, because you could sort of like flatten access to certain types of jobs and education. You're democratizing community then, or democratizing connection? I want to build something that's basically competitive with like the current transportation network. Japan took like this super, super long view on building trains. And I think that's why we're in a great place to be like taking a long view on what it means to build our version of teleportation or something. If you're willing to invest like 30 years into solving this problem and lay down the physical infrastructure to do it, which is what it took to build bullet trains and like all of the local railways and everything, It turns out that actually fiber internet is still way cheaper than building trains, right? All the projectors and all the components we're using is physically cheaper. It's very easy to see how this pandemic is certainly going to accelerate, like a lot of people choosing to no longer live in megacities because the benefits just aren't there. They used to be there. And that's going to be great for people because cities are so expensive. Technology has made the globe a village where it's supposed to be. And you're taking us closer to that is what you're really doing, right? Exactly. That was Taj Campbell, co-founder of Tenari. Tenari was founded on a simple premise. What if you could be in two places at once? Based in Japan, Tenari aims to create an in-person virtual reality with authentic life-size video and audio projection. Their mission is a world unbounded by distance, with access to work, education, and community everywhere. Because the world is a village, and we can stay connected to each other no matter where we are. I'm Maureen Taylor. This is Think Like a Founder. Thanks for listening. Join us on the next episode of Think Like a Founder when I talk to Carla Gallardo, co-founder and CEO of Guyana. We talk about her childhood in Ecuador and making her own clothes as a girl, her first job on Wall Street, and how she feels a responsibility to do good in the world.
Think Like a Founder is produced by SNP Communications in San Francisco, California. Learn more by visiting us at snpnet.com or connect with me, Maureen Taylor, on LinkedIn to continue the conversation there. Series producer is Roisin Hunt. Sound design by Mark Ream. Creative producer, Eli Shell. Content and scripting by Mike Sullivan. Production coordination, Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena, Persiani Shell, John Hughes, and Ren Barra. This is Think Like a Founder.